Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic. And today I'm going to be talking to Dan Mervish. Dan is a screenwriter and film director and a producer. And his new film, 18 and a Half, is available now on demand streaming at any good streaming service. And if you're in the States, there are some theatres which will be showing it. So please try to hunt them out. This is the kind of film that, you know how everybody says, oh, the cinema of the, the 70s, I wish they were making that sort of film. Well, this is that sort of film. It's a, a brilliant political sort of thriller, comedy oddball in a sort of Hal Ashby kind of way it's it's really good well worth a watch so I hope this conversation will lead you to have a look at it if you haven't already remember if you enjoy the episode to like subscribe follow me on twitter if you like at dr john t d r j o n t y i've not got a blue tick i'm afraid but you know who give who really cares that sort of stuff we are shining things we don't care about this you know piffle so anyway did I say I didn't care about it? I think I did. I think I said it once or twice. So one thing I, I also ought to mention is Lee Singer, a good friend of mine uh, and friend, friend of the podcast. He he pointed out at the very beginning of the podcast where the introduction, the musical introduction, and I where I talk, I say on cinema like that in a in, a, in an upward intonation, which he founds he finds incredibly funny. So I'm very tempted. 
tempted to re-record that to take away even an iota of pleasure that he seems to be getting uh, because of my hubris. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Anyway, before you need to concern yourself with any of those matters, please enjoy the conversation. Just so I don't forget, sure. is is Omaha like would would be considered Midwest sort of? Yeah, it's yeah. literally the middle of the country. Yeah, right, definitely. right. So it's got. I always get the. It's a. I'm not sure if it's a correct comparison, but I always think of the like the Russian steppes, like the, the Midwest, <laughs> just in the sense that you're in the middle of a massive landmass, and so yeah. you're, you know, there's no seas or oceans around you. Yeah, to exactly. Sort of... Yeah. Yeah, and no mountains either. So yeah, we sort of there was no no fun to be had anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and you grew up there in Omaha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gone uh, out when I can. Was it like a town or a village or? A... No, no, no. It's it's got about half a million people. So mm. it's sort of a big enough of a city that it's got a little bit of everything, you know, mm. good and bad and otherwise. Uh, but it's just very isolated. There's no other cities near it. So um, you know, the closest big city is kansas city and that's four hours away you know so wow you just feel really isolated out there yeah so you're, you're basically you basically have to fly if you want to get anywhere sort of yeah. remote, remotely interesting exactly <laughs> yeah we're driving <laughs> hours you know you can you know it's eight hours to the mountains or uh or most other cities so yeah yeah what uh, what was it like culturally what was the with with a with a you know was it okay from that point of view was it... yeah yeah because uh, as i say it was sort of big just barely big enough it had an opera and symphony and art museum and uh you know different religions and immigrants and um uh you know so it sort of had the trappings of a big city but mm. just barely you know, <laughs> so not, you know, and had theater. It's a, it's always been a good theater town. So a lot of actors, uh, Henry Fonda came from there and Marlon Brando, and, you know, a lot of people came from there and, uh, and, and, and then never went back. But um, yeah, so it's, it sort of had all, everything you would want in the city, um, you know, and growing up, I, you know, I would go there. It didn't really have an art house per se when I was growing up, but there was like, there would be, um, you know, art house films at the local college, they mm. would have a screening series. So I'd go see things there. And um, uh, now there, now there's a pretty good, uh, like actually one of the, one of the better, you know, sort of theatrical art houses in, in the country mm. um, is, is in Omaha and has three screens. And, and so we just, I just came back from there. We were screening the film two weeks there, which was a lot of fun. Excellent, excellent but my mom still lives there and so you know i go back quite a bit oh good good so you're not you yeah you haven't sort of like brushed the dust off your uh shoes and you know, no no and a lot and a lot of my backers on even on 18 and a half are still from there um because mm. a, a lot of old friends from high school and my one of my producing partners is dana altman who's robert altman's grandson he still oh. lives in omaha so um and he's based there so he helps me raise money and, and you know we work you know together on a lot of things so um so yeah so there's professional reasons i go back there and then but also you know friends and family 
So. Yeah, it's interesting those places that are sort of small and, and I mean, as you say, 500,000 people is not, not small by any stretch of the yeah. imagination, yeah. but they're kind of contained, let's say, that maybe maybe that's a better way of thinking yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah. Because they're, they're there can be a tendency for a place like that to to generate a um, an ecosystem where you have to create your own entertainment because nobody mm -hmm. nobody's necessarily coming through. Um, exactly. Was that, was that the case in Omaha? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it was certainly. You know, I my the first film I did, which was called Omaha the Movie. You see the poster there. Um, I mean, that was a case where I had I had left Omaha. I was going to film school at USC, but then I'd written the script that was set back in Nebraska, and I went back there. And this was before Alexander Payne was making his film, so I was the first real like local indie film made there, and it was great because we got you know the local film commission they're the ones who introduced me to dana um they you know they you know got me a meeting with the mayor the mayor was like sure we'll give you anything you want you know cranes and office anything and then the mayor wanted to be in the movie so we had a part for the mayor in the movie and then the governor's office called and they were like well we heard the mayor wants to be in the movie now the go can the is there a part for the governor and i was like well there is now you know and uh, <laughs> the governor gets in and then, and that was great because then the head of the roads department worked for the governor. So then that gave us access to any highway in the entire state, you know? So it was, um, you know, and then even on 18 and a half, we had Omaha Steaks, which is the big local company uh, that makes steaks. Uh, you know, they're still a product placement sponsor of the movie. Um, right. Because uh, largely because I grew up with the guy who owns the company, you know? So I've known him for 50 years. Uh, so yeah, you get that support there and uh and like i say there's a, there's like a pretty active theater scene so a lot of you know there's a lot of interesting theater coming out of there and uh yeah so it's uh but yeah exactly because you're not relying on anything or anyone else so you just jump start everything you know yourself whether it's a zine or a play or a movie or whatever it is yeah in my small town it was bands everybody uh everybody yep. bought an bought an instrument and you know uh it's it's also because where i lived was this it was basically a um a peninsula you know it's just like a somebody called it a 40 mile cul-de-sac that you know you you just drove out and then it the, the sea started so you just, nobody was ever passing through there was nowhere else to go <laughs> you know right so uh, but there was a big um submarine factory there was a big sort of shipyard and so we wow. had we yeah. had like a hundred percent employment. So people would leave school at sixteen, go straight into employment, and by the time they were in their early twenties, they were earning, you know, pretty good, pretty good wages. And um, but there was nothing to do. So basically, if you weren't into football or, or sport or anything like that, then you bought a drum kit or you bought a bass yep. guitar or you bought. Yeah. A, and, and so we had a thriving, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm uh, maybe I'm rose tinting it. Uh, <laughs> but I, I just remember it being so creative and yeah, you know, for yeah. instance no one did covers it was all original material wow. you know it was like wow, wow that's great the, yeah what the heck yeah um but let's let's talk about yeah for sure Let, uh, let's talk sorry you just broke up a tiny bit then i'm not sure what if it oh was. sorry no, it's okay. I just nothing important. Okay, <laughs> um, I'm sure. No, I'm sure it'll come out. And maybe sometimes when I uh, play it back, the bits that sounded odd are magically smoothed out. I don't know how. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, no, I wanted to talk about 18 and a Half, which is your latest film, and which is on, I think it's on video on demand in the UK, in the States as well. Is it still in theatrical? Yeah, ways? yeah. In the, in the US, I'm video in the US, Canada, UK, and Ireland right now. And it's still playing, we're sort of on the tail end of a 60 city theatrical run in the US as well. So it's still playing a few places in theaters here too. I, I really love this film and I'm really oh, sorry so that you sent me you sent me a link to it like a hundred years ago and I was like um, yeah. I'll, I'll get yeah. round to it and then I saw it on um, I saw it on an on-demand service and I thought okay right now I've got to <laughs> now that it's out in the world <laughs> I've got to see it um, uh, first of all the title you've got that um, uh, I know, you know, I know obviously it has a very specific plot point in the movie, but it's also that Fellini uh, uh, reference. Yeah, although it wasn't for me, that wasn't, I mean, that was, I mean, obviously about the about Fellini and, and Fellini was, was friends with uh, Jules Pfeiffer, who wrote my last film, who wrote Bernard and Huey. So he had mm. some good Fellini stories. But um, but you know Fellini was no idiot. Like eight eight and a half starts with a number, which means alphabetically it's always going to be first in any listing. And uh, and I thought, well, yeah, he was pretty smart about that. So, um, but there's not. I mean, there's not really any direct linkage, except you know they both both films kind of take place at a seaside you know motel, and that's about that's about the beginning and the end of it I, but and some of our characters are a little wacky i suppose but <laughs> oh yeah i i felt a little bit of a a, a few a, a tinge let's say a tinge yeah, uh, yeah. it's definitely not you know a direct there's there's no huge quotes or anything like that so yeah no, no and it and it kind of betrays more my roots in politics because i, I worked in dc for a couple of years as a senate speechwriter and you know someone use, says the word 18 and a half and immediately you think Watergate, you don't mm. think Fellini. So, you know, for me, that was always kind of first and foremost in my mind, but anyway. Right. So, so when, when did that fit in your, your uh, career in Washington? Uh, you, so you left uh, the University of Southern California uh, where you were doing your... No, so I had, I did my undergraduate degree in St. Louis, which was right. an eight hour drive from Omaha um, right. and that, had um and that was kind of when i first started to get involved with film there was a one but they didn't have a film program they had one super eight class so i took that liked it did some summer classes at ucla in where i learned 16 millimeter went back to school um and uh and i but i wound up majoring in history and and i did a, a semester in dc internship and then when i graduated i thought I might go to film school. So I took the GREs, which is the test to get into any graduate school. Mm. But I, then I went to DC, worked a little bit as a journalist first, and then got this job as a speechwriter for about a year and a half. But even doing that, we recorded this senator I worked for, we recorded a lot of his speeches in, um, in the basement of the Capitol. There's a couple of video studio, we would do a lot on video, you know, and then just send the VHS out to, you know, the Boy Scout troop and point or wherever it was mm. um so i was still hanging out with cameras and editing equipment even though i wasn't really doing much myself because they, there were these guys in the booth and they kept saying yeah you ought to go to film school kid and uh so after a couple of years i thought you know i like dc it went really well for me but i thought and you know, i still wanted to try my hand at, at filmmaking so 
then I got into applied to film school, got into USC. That was the only one I got into, mm. um, and then got my master's degree in uh, in graduate production, you know, in filmmaking there. And then my thesis film, that's when I did Omaha the movie. Um, right. And then I kind of never looked back. I've been in LA ever since. So, um, <laughs> but I've, you know, I've, I've still, you know, had that political side in me. So I've always been curious about Watergate and interested in, in Watergate and, and also not just Watergate specifically, but just kind of the culture of, you know, 20 somethings in Washington having access to amazing information and power and how do you use that responsibly, you know, and, and that kind of, you see it obviously in the film with Connie, uh, the Willa Fitzgerald character, but it also kind of relates to, you know, what we just saw in the States with the January 6th hearings. You had, you know, 25-year-old Cassidy Hutchinson, you know, dropping these bombshells on the presidency because people forget 25-year-olds in the White House know a lot and they see a lot and, you know, it, and and then, you know, wrestling with, do you really, you know, do you leak it? Do you release it? Do you testify about it or not? Yeah, yeah. And, and they've also sort of got less to lose from, to, 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 you know, they, yeah. they haven't started their careers yet, so they could always go to California, for instance, and do something else. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, you know, exactly. And they, and they might even ha be more sort of ideologically, you know, I mean, I, I'm not sure about, um, I, I, there's a little bit of me that doesn't want to wave any sort of cheerleading pom-poms for uh, people's, you know, leaving the sinking ship. But you, know, yeah, exactly. you seem to be exactly. seem to be pretty happy for for four years while uh, while Trump was in power. Yeah, and we and we do go into that a little bit with with Connie's character, like mm. you know when when John Magaro says, you know, well, I'll bet you voted. For for Nixon twice, you know, and um, and yeah, that is always the interesting thing with with people that are seeking the best material is they 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 were at one point true believers, or they wouldn't have been there in the first place. And so that's always kind of the interesting thing that they wrestle with, and then how the rest of us have to perceive whatever it is they're leaking, and is it and is it colored by their own experience. Yeah, that that is a really interesting point that you you need to sort of the Judas Iscariot has to be a, a, an amazing Christian to begin with, you know, has to be one of the, <laughs> has to be one of the disciples. He can't be just some geezer, you know, turning up from outside. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that you know that's also the the interesting comparison between the Nixon scandal and Watergate and and, and what just happened in the UK with. Um, you know, with Boris Johnson is that some of the more interesting scandals come not necessarily from the principal person, but from all the crazy loyalists around them and all the hand wringing and and cover ups that they they do out of blind loyalty. And, um, you know, but then what is the person at the in, in the middle of it? You know, are they encouraging that or not? So, um, uh, yeah, I think it both, that would it, certainly be with Watergate. Yeah, I think I think in both cases it's that you know they're spreading a culture of that sort of stuff. So mm -hmm. it's yeah. uh, it's almost like the thing with Trump of sort of like someone whose whole philosophy is never never apologize, never you know never admit weakness. You know that just spreads to everybody. It's it's uh, well, this yeah. is what the boss would do. You know. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, in a sense, that's what. I remember because I, when I was living in um, Italy when Berlusconi was around and Berlusconi I think was very much a precursor to all these political woes that we, yep. we've got at the moment yeah um, 
I remember somebody on the Italian news saying this would never happen in America because in America you had Nixon and Nixon had to resign for just lying. And it was always held up as this, look how that system works because they got rid of a pres president just for lying, you know. And compared to Berlusconi, who's been found guilty of so much, so many other things, and he's still there. That that was the sort of comparison. <laughs> and now it's just yeah. like, wow, that Nixon's the time of Nixon feels innocent now. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, yeah, and that you know, and and at the end of the day, I mean, I I wanted to make a film that would you know sort of reflect on on everything that was going on with Nixon. Um, but I th I think part of it was. It wasn't just that he lied once and then and then he, you know he was forced out of office. Is people forget there were a lot of other scandals going on. The mm -hmm. ITT scandal, which most people completely forget, was front page news up until Watergate became front page news, and then and then it went on the back page. But there were you know there were tons of other scandals. We don't even get into all of them in the movie. Um, and I think, and, and it was interesting talking to Pfeiffer about this because he did these political cartoons about Nixon in the in the 70s. And, you know, he said, yeah, Watergate was just like the tip of the iceberg. People mm -hmm. had been frustrated with Nixon, you know, for for decades, even before he was president. The, half the people in the country thought he was a weasel. And it was really only the, you know, with Watergate and, and specifically with the 18 and a half minute gap that I think his own party finally turned on him. And that, and that was the nail in the coffin for him. Um, I mean, do, so, you, uh, yeah. do you think that, um, uh, uh, that, 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 that idea that the, the, their party, I mean, that's another parallel, which doesn't seem to work anymore is, is that we're in a situation in which, um, the, the the party the GOP is not going to turn on Trump like ever you know yeah I mean, I mean and that's and people kept waiting for that to happen and it never happened and it still hasn't happened um, because the, again with Nixon like it did finally happen but it just it never did with with uh, with Trump and the GOP now and uh, yeah that's a big difference for sure <laughs> What about the role of uh, the journalists in in this sort of situation as well? Because you're, uh, I, I love the when your character says, um, uh, you know, he's basically competing with the Washington Post. It's like the Washington yeah. Post are kicking our, our ass, so we really need a, a, a thing. That's so, so like even within the sort of, it's not, you know, Woodward and Bernstein sort of the sword of truth and the shield of authenticity. Yeah. It's it's like uh, no, we just need we need circulation as well. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, they and and even back in their in their time, it, it you know there was competition. Um, you know, CBS News was there, and the New York Times. There were you know the 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 Spielberg movie, The Post. You know, got into a lot of that competition between the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, and uh, but yeah, that was definitely there. You know, at the at the time, and and you see it now even more. Where you know where each cable station is trying to you know out out each other and get the scoops and get the exclusives and um and you know and what i've found interesting just over over the years with other projects i've done is that you know then as as a, someone who is leaking material or revealing material or, or trying to get a story out you can use that competition to your advantage you can play them all off against each other and um, and, the, and there's always a little bit of, of, of that dynamic at, at play here as, you know, you know, as his motivation. 
um, one of the things that I mean, especially because we, as as a writers on film podcast, I'm interested in the writing of the screenplay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, and the thing, um, one one thing I'd really have to congratulate you on is the the MacGuffin that you have is just so clever. It's so rich. <laughs> that idea. Where did that? I mean, um, wh- where did that sort of come from? Because of course, it's the it's the missing minutes of the tape. Yeah. But just the idea that they would accidentally record themselves record, trying to delete it, it was just just genius. I mean, it, it well, goes thanks, beyond Mark. it goes beyond MacGuffin. It becomes yeah, you know, yeah, uh, it's much more. So, um, well, first of all, just kind of stepping back. I mean, the the the, the idea for this thing happened when um, it was on the last day of shooting my last film, Bernard and Huey. Um, uh, coincided with the presidential election in 2016. Trump had just been elected. I then went out to see, uh, to show dailies of that film to Pfeiffer, who was living in Shelter Island, which is the tip of Long Island. Um, and inevitably we started making these comparisons and, and chatting about Nixon and, and Trump. And then that night I took the ferry over to uh, Greenport, Long Island, a small town on the, on the northern tip of Long Island where my friend Terry owns his motel, the mm. Silver Sands Motel. And um, and he inherited it from his grandparents in the 50s and 60s, but he's kind of maintained this vintage look. They've done a lot of fashion shoots and music videos, but no one's ever shot a feature. He says, well, you know, if we come up, if you, Dan, if you come up with the story, you know, everyone on the cast and crew can stay out here. And and he was with me talking to Pfeiffer. So we both kind of had Watergate on, on the first and foremost on the mind. I was like, hmm, 1974. It looks like 1974. It's a great location. Mm. Uh, but how can we make a Watergate film here when water, the bulk of the Watergate story happened in Washington, D.C.? Um, and then I thought about it for a while, and then I got a, a, a writing partner involved, Daniel Moya, who had been an intern on my last film. Uh, coincidentally, his aunt and uncle owned this uh, diner that was just down the street from the Silver Sands. So we're like, well, now that's two locations. Now we have to make a movie. <laughs> so uh, now I knew a fair bit about Watergate just from my own background. Daniel was much younger than me. He still is. And um, uh, so he was kind of doing original research, for, you know, kind of coming at it as a fresh 25 year old. Um, but in doing the research, uh, one of the most interesting things we found was that there really are tapes of Nixon listening to uh, tapes in a room that then that room had its own voice activated taping <laughs> system. Cause there really are, there really were four or five different rooms in the white house complex that had the, the taping systems. And there really are tapes of him kind of fumbling around with the buttons and listening to this. And once we realized that, then it was like, ah, now there's a plausible way in that a character like Connie um, could have access to the 18 and a half minute gap that we know in real life was deleted. And so this, so that, but then it, it also, as you say, like it made it much more interesting because then we didn't just have a version of the tape. We had a version of the people talking about how and where they're going to erase the tape. So all of a sudden that introduced you know, two layers that we could, you know, make up, you know, so it's fictional. So, um, so once we sort of had that, that idea for the MacGuffin, um, you know, and, and the, the plausible, you know, idea, uh, then, then it, it gave us a way to somehow get to this motel, you know, mm. um, which we then geographically, we moved it closer to Washington. We say it's in Maryland, which is a lot closer to DC, but it's still, um, 
you know, we, we still came up with that. But I think philosophically also, I wanted my approach to historical fiction is, um, and I don't know if it's more or less traditional than, but like if you compare it to Tarantino, for example, where mm. he'll, something will happen in the past and, and history is completely rewritten. We're on a completely different alternate timeline by the end of his movies. And what I wanted to do very specifically was create this sort of fictional, you know, loop. It's 24 hours, really, what happens in the film. Mm. Um, but by the end of it, without completely spoiling the end of the movie, um, history's completely reset itself to what we know. You know, mm. there is no 18 and a half minute gap. It was deleted. Mm. And so, uh, so I don't know if that's called speculative, plausible historical fiction or, or, or what. I'm sure there's some sort of academic description of, of, of that. But that was kind of what we were aiming for was so how do we create this this story that somehow the ending is 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 predetermined is is what we know it is to be so that was always kind of the challenge was was what can we do and and how do we make that work and it's much more fitting to the sort of the the milieu of the of the time really all those paranoid um, you know, three days of the Condor and yeah, uh, yeah. the Parallax View and all that sort of that era of paranoid thrillers that we had, which this I think is really, really diving into and being right in the middle of that. Thank you. Um, well, that was that was always my original pitch to mm. Daniel and to Terry and everyone was, you know, it's three days. I wanted to do three days of the Condor meets Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf, but a little funnier than either of those. So right there you and, go there's uh, your elevator pitch right there <laughs> yeah absolutely I, I, yeah. I, if you hadn't already made it i'd be writing a check right now to see them well thanks sir. <laughs> thanks, but it's um yeah I, I, and I, it reminds me a little bit as well that idea i'd love this idea of sort of doing history but a little to the left or a little to the right of the of, not politically but uh, just uh, not in the center of the action is what I'm trying to say. So sort of yeah, Rosen, yeah, Rosencrantz yeah. and Guildenstern version. Yeah, exactly. Of, you know, right. Who, right. The, who are the attendant lords? Who are the who's the, girl, the the woman who's typing stuff in the transcribing room? You know. Yeah. 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 And that and again that sort of goes back to my own history in Washington, where I saw like there there is a, a vast number of people that you never hear about, you know, that are these 25 year olds or 20 year olds or, or longtime civil servant staffers who are not, um, uh, you know, who are not political appointees. So they're there throughout different administrations. That's where there's a reference to, oh, she's a GS2, not a GS4. And because that's a level of civil servant, you know, category. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was always kind of one of the ideas I, I always wanted to play with play around with yeah the, the the sort of i mean what we call uh, the civil service in uh, mm -hmm. i think in england yeah. we have these civil servants that um yeah uh who you know following on from the the johnson the johnsonian scandals uh, uh, they're kind of a lot of those career civil servants have been the people who have ended up blowing the, the whistle because it's just like you know we've, we're here to defend the office we're not here to defend the individual you know yeah, exactly. I mean, you saw that in Trump's uh, first impeachment, especially where you had these national security and foreign service officers who were, you know, they're essentially apolitical people, but they're they're the ones monitoring the calls and listening in and working in the, in, you know, in the sort of the lower level of the White House. They don't care who's president. They're like, hey, I work for the military or the foreign service or the, 
national security you know commission i it doesn't matter to me you know if he's yeah. gonna try to bribe the president of ukraine you know uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna blow the whistle on it yeah yeah there's a po the po political leaders are just like the weather they're just coming in and then going out again and you have to make sure the ship's yeah, yeah. more or less in the same state as as they left it yeah exactly exactly um do you find when you when you were writing the story then you were you you had yourself you had your setting already sorted because you had your locations you had your time period because you wanted it to be sort of a a, a unit of, of time um did, how how did, did you go about sort of getting the story and the characters there to sort of fit you know those those parameters that you'd set yourself well we did um you know and and this was at a time when i was traipsing around the world going to film festivals with Bernard and Huey. So I was, mm. I still, I knew I was going to be busy with that. So that's why I, I really wanted to get Daniel involved and kind of, we came up with the story together, talking it through. And then I kind of set him loose to write the first few drafts of the script. Um, I think initially we wanted to keep it even simpler and it was just basically these two couples, Connie and, and Paul, and then they meet this older couple. Um, uh, uh, you know, played by Vondi Curtis Hall and Kathy Curtin, uh, Lena and Samuel, who were sort of this representative of the World War II generation. Mm. Um, and we actually had a few drafts with just them, and then and the the hotel was more sparse. And then we just sort of shared the script with a few friends, and they're like, "Yeah, you need a couple more people here." You know, mm. the locations are. You know, locations can be either the cheapest or the most expensive thing in your budget, but actually adding a few extra characters doesn't cost you that much more money. So we're like, okay. So then we came up with the hippie characters, and that may and and we all we already had the the Richard Kind character who plays like the the guy who runs a hotel. Um, so then it was about adding them in there as well, um, uh, and just kind of populating the world even though it's supposed to be kind of winter and sparse and not a lot of people but we're like yeah okay let's just add add those characters in um but uh yeah so that was that was one big sort of change we made kind of in in midstream was was adding those and then the other interesting thing i think that happened just from a writing perspective is you know when i sort of first turned daniel loose on the screenplay he kind of added he the first 30 pages of the first draft hmm. were all sort of this introduction where where connie goes to work and we meet people that she works with and how does she get the tape and how does she decide to leak it to this reporter and make the call and things like that and then she only gets on the ferry on page 31 you know right and, and shows up in the town and i said well that's great but i want to start the movie mm. <laughs> you know um on page 31 and so let's cut out everything from before that <laughs> and at first he was like what i just spent you know a month working on that i said it's okay it it, it will come in handy you know it, for us for the characters for you know it us knowing that backstory is important to us writing the rest of the script. Mm. Um, we don't have to show it. And, and in the end, we show a little tiny couple snippets of it as flashback, and that's fine too. Um, but without having to go into, you know, all the details. And uh, so that was that was an interesting kind of pivot uh, in the writing process. And, and uh, you know, so that's just one little insight into sort of how we 
did that. When you got the um, when you got the casting sort of uh, locked, was that was that a point at which the the screenplay was locked as well, or did you find yourself going, oh well, I think we know who's going to play this character, so I can write a bit more in this direction, or how how did that work out? So the casting was for the most part pretty last minute, and I can get into that later. So we had the sure. script done quite a bit earlier. The mm -hmm. the one actor that we kind of wrote with them in mind or with their voice in mind was was Richard Kind. That's exactly because, who I was thinking yeah, of because yeah, he, yeah. he's just so good. He's so good. <laughs> I think I think the only so, thing you'd have to do is try to stop yourself from from writing more and more stuff for him because yeah, he's just such a We great did. Player. Yeah, exactly. Uh yeah. So Rich had been in my last film. He he had mm. been in Bernard McHughey. So I I knew him. I was familiar with him. We'd done rehearsals on that film. So I kind of knew what his range was. And Daniel had worked on that film too. So he he was familiar with him too. Now, but we also knew that he's always very busy. And mm. you know, because he, he'll do anything. Like he'll show up for food as long as you <laughs> feed him. <laughs> he'll be there. Whether it's a play, a podcast, a TV show, a feature film. Pixar movie, you know, voiceover, he'll 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 show up. So I knew that we had access to him. Like I could call him. I knew his agent. I knew his manager. But I didn't know for sure we'd get him because it was always very schedule dependent. But just as an as a sort of a voice that we Daniel and I had in our head for that character, we're like, all right, let's let's sort of imagine Rich's voice in it. And even if it's a different actor, it'll still, you know, be kind of that unique voice. Um, and then we got lucky in the end and we were able to get, you know, scheduled. So that was good. But otherwise, um, we, you know, as a as a filmmaker, I always try to keep a very open mind about who the cast is going to be. I try not to have any preconceived ideas at all, mm. because, number one, you're never going to get the person <laughs> that you think you're going to get. I mean, the richer kind being the one exception. But for the, you know, you could say, oh, you know, I'm best friends with Tom Cruise. I've known him for 30 years and then I'm going to write a part just for him. And then, you know, you get ready to shoot and he's shooting, you know, Maverick or, you know, Top Gun or something. It's like, whoops, I guess yeah. I don't have that guy. So you can't, you can never know for sure who you're going to get on these kind of films, even if you want. But also that if you have someone kind of preconceived in your head, it does a bit of a disservice to the actor that you do wind up getting because they get a sense that, hang on a second, I wasn't the first choice and I know specifically who your first choice was and I'm never going to match up or be exactly the same as that person. So I very sort of consciously try to keep an open mind uh, about casting when we're in the writing process. So in our case, we finished the script more or less in May of 2019. Um, uh, Willa Fitzgerald was the first person we met with for uh for connie she was recommended by an agent that had recommended people on my last film also was recommended by filmmaker lucky mckee who i knew and he she was great um we didn't know for sure we would cast her she was but she was the first meeting we had and then we thought about other people other people and then about a week or two before shooting we went back to Willa and asked her if she was available and she was and, and still excited to be in the movie. Um, she was great. John Magaro was recommended by um, Kelly Reichardt because mm. he just done first cat with her and I know her a little bit. And so, she, you know, if she says someone's good. You, you trust her. Um, 
But we were shooting with those two for the first, so we started shooting March 3rd, 2020. Uh, what could possibly go wrong, wrong in March of 2020? I'm, I'm thinking uh, back. I don't think nothing really happened much. Yeah, really. nothing, yeah. no, not memorable at all. Um, so it was it was sort of the the early rumblings of the pandemic, but mm -hmm. it was still already getting a little hard to get people to commit to fly from LA to New York. We had an actress that was going to play Lena that had been attached for a while. Then at the last second, her schedule didn't work out. So we were shooting for a week with with just Connie and Paul, all their scenes together, um, and we didn't know who was going to play any of the rest of the cast. Mm. Um, or certainly not uh, Lena and Samuel, the two other pivotal actors in the movie. Sure. And then with about 36 hours notice, we got uh, Vondi Curtis Hall and Kathy Curtin um, attached before their scene started. And so, you know, and, and you know, Lena's, the character of Lena was always supposed to, was written as a French woman. And, mm. uh, and we actually originally had a French actress that was gonna play her. And the first thing Kathy says is, oh, I'd love to do this film. You guys are in a pickle. I'm going to come help you out. But by the way, I can't really do a French accent very well. <laughs> like, okay, well, let's make it a bit more of a pan-European character with her backstory. Right. We dropped in a couple little hints about that, but it was it was fun. And um, But she had such tremendous chemistry with Vondi Curtis Hall as as um, you know just as actors and as characters and that was great but also their choices that they made were very different and unique and and a surprise to Willa and John and so a lot of uh, Paul and Connie's reactions in the film to this strange crazy couple are their real reactions because <laughs> it was the first time doing it and I've talked to Vondi about it and he said you know that was a lot of fun you know on the one hand sometimes you like to do a lot of rehearsal but if you don't you can make it work to your advantage he said you know it was a lot of fun knowing that these other actors had no idea what they were going to do you know yeah, I mean, it kind of becomes there, a game they, like we're going to juice them a little bit yeah it really was like that and uh and especially he said like in the dancing scene like he John Magaro had no idea what Vondi was going to do. And, was, <laughs> and you really see some real reactions there, which was great. They all had fun with that. We all did. So, yeah. And, um, and the, that was... The accent as well. Um, I I kind of felt that that was that I was uh, listening to it and trying to place her, and then sort of thinking, oh, but this really fits in with the fact that you don't quite trust anybody. So everybody, yeah, exactly, you know, anybody can be playing any kind of role at this point. Yeah, yeah, and with and with those characters especially, and it was and I had discussions with Kathy and Vondi about where where was their story true. And, mm. and where was it false, you know? And and I think we all agreed that their their sort of the backstory about him being a World War II veteran, meeting this French woman, um, that part was true to them uh, as characters. Everything else was made up, but um, uh, you know, for reasons that people will find out in the movie. But um, but that we wanted to sort of tell this real, you know, love story, but also, you know, a Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Rest, what was the World War II generation doing in 1974? And what was their influences and backstories and motivations and and you know because normally you think of oh you know 1974 you're just telling a 70s story well mm. but there were still people around not that much older you know from from who had gone through world war ii and it was interesting kind of more on the festival circuit now once we'd finished the film thinking about the war in ukraine uh not to bring it too down but thinking about like how displaced people in europe suddenly get when there's a war and it kind of made that character's accent make a bit more sense like oh yeah there probably were people from Alsace Lorraine who had moved to France at the beginning of the war or you know or moved to Paris and it was like oh yeah that that kind of makes a bit more sense you know contextually now but yeah absolutely the sort of melting pot has been stirred mm -hmm. once more you know yeah uh, uh, it, it's um, I mean and there's so many other levels working here as well because we talked already about sort of three days of the condor and that sort of stuff but there's also sort of like the, a sort of sex comedy that you would that you would sort of <laughs> you know I, I'm trying to think of uh, what's that name of that film which is just a list of names um, Bob Carroll oh Bo uh, yeah Bob Ted Alice, Alice. And yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah, I always I get it mixed up. There's a there's a British film called Rita Sue and Bob Two, and I always uh, the, the, oh yeah, that is confusing, man. Right, right. Um, but yeah, I, I sort of had a feel for that. There was that sort of you know, and and again, you, talking about it generationally, you've got sort of like the older characters of Second World War generation going on. You've got the 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 characters who Connie and and John in the in the middle who were sort of like they're kind of like living in the 70s but they've very consistently brought you know conforming to the second world war generation essentially or that eisenhower sort of background right, right and then you've got the hippies sort of burning stuff um on the beach and uh, and singing songs and and sort of uh, and that's the kind of well, I, I was going to say that's kind of the future, but it kind of isn't as well because it's already the past then, isn't it? You know. Yeah, exactly. And that was that was a fun thing to play around with their characters is that the hippie gener, you know, the peace and love hippies had already had their heyday in the '60s. So mm. by '74, if you were still thinking of yourself as a hippie, or other people were thinking of you as a hippie, you may have just as easily been in a cult or a domestic terrorism group, or like it was not. There was something funny about still being a hippie in 1974 that was not as simple as you know just peace and love 1968 woodstock so um but also we were playing around with in 1974 was the very tail end of the vietnam war mm. and how does that affect uh, barry who's the head of the hippies you know he's a vietnam vet but also you know it affects connie and and some of the other things going on at the time too so yeah, so it was kind of playing with all these cultural forces and, you know, uh, and, and having fun with the specificity of 1974, as opposed to by 76, it would have been disco, they'd be doing disco music, you know, and that kind of thing. But, um, and that was, that was fun to then think about and, and, and 
figure out what our musical choices were going to be mm. in the film. And so I, I had a, a, I've got a great composer and dear friend, Luis Guerra, uh, who'd worked on my last film too. And so we decided very early on to kind of lean into a, a Brazilian theme, which fit mm. with the characters of Samuel and Lena and sort of thinking about what would sort of cosmopolitan middle-aged couple in the 70s be listening to they would be listening to sort of hip music in the from the 60s which was bossa nova and also it fit with their world travels mm. um you know they they say they've been to brazil so that sort of made sense so then we came up with fully original bossa nova song and score i wrote the lyrics to the songs but we had them translated by a brazilian friend into portuguese and so some of them are in, sung in portuguese and in english which which was done with bossa nova uh, songs then but then even the hippies are listening to the music they're listening to we kind of lean into um brazilian uh psychedelic music uh, called tropicalia and mm. we were kind of influenced by that and um just because we wanted a sort of consistency and in, well, and singers too, because we had found a great Brazilian singer in LA, Paro Pierotto, who could sing in both English and Portuguese and, and mm. could do different styles. So that that sort of made sense to uh, to have her. So we had a lot of fun with the soundtrack, definitely. Mm. Mm. And also, that, I mean, that sort of stuff keeps keeps the budget within a certain. Uh, oh level, yeah, you know, because musical. No, works. definitely, and yeah, I mean, for sort of creative and budgetary reasons, mm. it's I I didn't want to just do you know put in Creedence Clearwater or, or the Rolling Stones, you know, that would mm. that would have been a bigger budget than the whole film, you know. Yeah. But also, I think creatively, it's a bit of a crutch that a lot of like big Hollywood period films use because then you're listening to those lyrics, you're not listening to the dialogue, you've also got all whatever associations the audience has with that, with those songs from either films or just the music. Um, whereas with original music, you can really, it's a you know, tabula, tabula rasa, you know, you're, you are putting in those first impressions of, of those songs. Absolutely, absolutely. Sorry, I, I buried my own question by asking too much oh, uh, in the last one, <laughs> um, uh, which was that sort of the the, the sexual frisson, the, the sort yeah. of atmosphere, which I yes. guess also co goes with the motel. You know, just the fact that you've got people in a motel, so it's a yeah, yeah. opportunity. Uh, yeah, no, and we, you know, we yeah, we always wanted to have fun with with that whole thing, and and you know and it's and it's playing around with tropes that have been in plenty of other movies you know with these two characters pretending to be someone they're not and that you know pretending to be a married couple and then somehow that forces them to start kissing each other or whatever you know but yeah but also playing around with the idea are, are is the older couple are they swingers are they cannibals like you don't know what's <laughs> gonna happen and uh and we didn't either so that, that was such a great balancing act too because i i was i was sort you're sort of you want to see more of them and then you're also saying get out of that room <laughs> so. yeah, yeah exactly exactly and that was fun you know and that was a challenge also like how do you put in a 24 page scene with four people at a dinner table and and still make it feel like a movie and not a play you know mm. and um so that was an interesting challenge in in acting, editing, and writing. You know, cinematography, and and so we, you know, we had fun with that where we could. And I, I mean, it always retains a a, a very sort of um, comic. There's a comic fizziness to it as it as it goes along. But but you know, you go to dark places. Yeah. No. Well, because at the end of the day, you know, it it's. Um, 
we had to sort of reset history and this thing, mm. this gap had to, had to be missing and people couldn't have too many witnesses, you know, so. Mm. <laughs> I get you. Uh, but I mean, you mentioned but, Tarantino, yeah. you mentioned Tarantino uh, earlier and as sort of, uh, as this, the other way of doing it and creating mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. fantasy, essentially. Yeah, Charles Charles Manson doesn't kill anybody, so I assume he's he's still roaming around Hollywood. <laughs> you know, I'm not. Right, maybe he goes right. and kills a bunch of other people a lot more efficiently. You know. Yeah. Who knows? Um, right. Right. Um, so, but but you, another thing that I sort of goes with the Tarantino thing is is that sort of comic use of violence. There's a sort of there's violence yeah. in it, but it's but it's done with a with a definite sly black humor. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, um, I, but but also I I was you know very much influenced by Robert Altman and and mm. you know his grandson's still one of my partners and um, you know films like A Wedding um, uh, or Mash uh, you know play with you know you can uproarious comedy one minute and then you know dead people the next minute and 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 tragedy and and human drama and and so I've always been fascinated and then. You know, Pfeiffer had written Carnal Knowledge, and that was another one that sort of plays tonally with how mm. things go up and down. And he'd also written Little Murders that Alan Arkin directed from 71, um, which is another one that sort of vastly goes from, you know, crazy, ridiculous slapstick comedy to, you know, tragedy and, you know, in a snap of a finger. So that was something that I think 70s films did, you know, in a way that doesn't happen as much now. Um, but uh but yeah so that was you know we kind of wanted to play around with with those tonal changes and you know they work for some people and, you know hopefully oh. for more more people than don't so yeah absolutely i mean i do think that 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 what you're saying about Pfeiffer's earlier films and the uh, you know canal knowledge and, and little murders have seen both of which that sort of generic experimentation and sort of uh, and and you know tonal you know, promiscuity if you like it's uh it, it, it's you're right it's not it, it there should be a bit more of it i think because it's it, yeah. it, it you, then you never quite know what you're watching you you know you never you can't get comfortable it's it's a good yeah it's a good dis discomfort exactly yeah and the, and, the, and i think that the trick to the extent that we pull it off is is using the music as a consistent thing because then and what, something luis and i talked about a lot was he said that you know, with bossa nova, you can kind of with while still keeping the basic rhythms and melodies, you can tweak it to be more thriller or comedic or spy or or different tonal qualities while still keeping a consistency throughout the film. So, you know, even in the ending where, which we won't spoil, but um, where things take a turn for the for the dark side, the the melodies that he's incorporating there are Brasilia Bella, which is kind of Connie's theme song that we have from the beginning. And it's, you hear it in Portuguese during the dance scene and you hear it in English at the very, very end of the movie. And so having that sort of these consistent melodies and rhythms with bossa nova as kind of the underlying, you know, genre um, that allows, I hope anyway, that allows us to kind of make these tonal shifts while still feeling like it's the same movie that you're watching mm. <laughs> which mm. was a challenge because in editing before we had the music in place it's like are we making am i cutting the same movie here <laughs> <You know? laughs> how so, long did it take you to put it together after after 
photography finished? Well, the, 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 so I mentioned that we were shooting in March of 2020. Um, so we, by about day 10 of shooting, and it was a 15 day schedule, uh, the rep from the Directors Guild came out to visit us from, uh, from New York. And she said, oh, this is great. You guys are so isolated out here because we were three hours outside of New York. We were a 20 minute walk to the nearest town. And she's like, oh, you've got this bubble. You're all socially distant out here. And I was like, what does that term even mean? I'd never even heard it. And, um, and she said, oh, and by the way, you're one of the last two films shooting in North America. And I was like, what? I was like, what does everybody else know that we don't know? Because we'd heard that, oh, South by Southwest had been canceled. Broadway had been canceled. The NBA had been canceled. And big movies and TV shows had been canceled. We didn't realize everyone had shut down at that point. So the next day after our 11th day, we shut down as well. And we had four days left to go. So I grabbed a hard drive. I came back to L.A. Uh, Most of the cast and crew were New York based. And actually a third of our crew about seven or eight of them wound up staying at the Silver Sands for 10 more weeks because no one else was staying there. So Terry said, why don't you guys just stay here? It's safer than New York at that mm. point. And these were like the single Brooklyn types, you know? And so they just stayed there. Our cinematographer, she stayed for six months. She just never left. I think she's right. still there for, for that matter. And, um, and then, uh, you know, six months later, we were able, you know, the Screen Actors Guild, Directors Guild had come up with the COVID safe protocols but it was still very early in that process. And we were one of the first films back. So we went back in September and, and shot the last four days. But then during that six month gap, I was editing, I was making sourdough too. That was another big project I had then as many people. You're the, you're the only person um, to have done that. That's <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Well, I'm my, my starter took really quickly and I was like, okay. all right, I'm going to make bread. I mean, I'd always been a baker, but I hadn't done much bread. Right. So anyway, I started making sourdough, but also just editing. And it, it was the only thing that kept me sane. And um, but then during that time, that's when we also realized we could do our um, our voiceover performance with Bruce Campbell and Ted Bramey and, and John Cryer. And because they were all actors were sitting at home with nothing to do for six months. And so we're like, you know what? You guys all have Zoom. Some of you have decent microphones. And we basically did it over Zoom and it was fun. It was in June of 2020. All of a sudden we could do this little self-contained 18 and a half minute radio drama mm. while everyone else was sitting around not doing anything creatively. So that was that was really fun to, to work on that with those guys. Um, but also the same thing with musicians. Luis could reach out to musicians in Brazil, in Mexico City. We, he had a buddy in Mex- who had been stuck and stranded in Mexico City. We're like, you know what? Put together a horn section. That's going to be mm-hmm. our horn section, and they're like, "All right, we got nothing else going on. Let's 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 work on the movie." So musically, we started writing a lot more uh, and a lot more songs and a lot more you know, melodies, and, and and started filling it out with with uh, Caro, who played at Luis's studio in L.A., but in an isolated booth, so that was safe. Mm-hmm. She had to go back to Brazil because of COVID reasons, and she worked with a studio in Brazil too, so we got them involved. Anyway, and then finally, and then Daniel and I work on the script, and that, and this goes back to the theme of the podcast is is writing. Is that gave us a sort of unique luxury that you only kind of studio films do, where they take these breaks in editing, see what they have, and then they, they always do reshoots. Well, we didn't have to reshoot anything, but we had these four days, so we could kind of tweak the script and dial it in based on the footage we already had been editing, and and that was really helpful. 
you know, we, we got rid of a couple of scenes. We added one or two scenes, but it was, and, and just like these little tweaks in the dialogue. Oh, we need a little bit more of this, a little bit less of that. And that was really helpful. So when we got back to set and we had those four days, we could really kind of do exactly what we needed to and, and, and plug those scenes in. I was really amazed when No Time to Die came out that this film had been sat on for two years and, yeah. no, and nobody thought, you know what, we could rewrite a bit of that, that, that villain character. He's not very good, is he? Can we, can't we do a little bit more with him? Or does this plot point, does it really make much sense? And that we should clarify you know, that? I, I, I still don't yeah, know wow, what that... the villain was actually planning to do with any of the stuff. I... Yeah, it's bizarre. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Because I like I like the movie, but I've watched it once or twice more, and it makes less sense the more I watch it. Yeah, which yeah. should not happen in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely, and you're not. right. They had time. They had time. To, I mean, they could have ADR'd some like just a line saying, "Oh, well, you know, his plan is this, and that's it." You know, you've just got it in a nutshell. You know? Well, who knows? Maybe they did do that, and you can imagine what it was before. So maybe right. it was even more confusing before. So maybe they did do something. I don't know. But right, um, could be. Yeah. 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 No, well, you, you, it looked like you, you did much more with that opportunity than they did. Anyway. <laughs> so it's a totally different film, but, you know, yeah. totally different yeah. genre. But. Well, and then even, even after that, you know, playing around with, um, you know, shooting a few insert shots in my garage where I am now. I actually mm. have the, the tape players here. Oh, God, it's heavy. There's oh, the tape wow. player. Well, I so, wanted to talk about that as well because that that's obviously you know central. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but the the just the that technology, that sense of like we need to go and get a, a tape machine, and that you know we can't call Amazon because it doesn't exist yet. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. <laughs> the idea is yeah. like, and and that was fun. Like again, doing the research and figuring out like this was this kind of unique time before cassette tapes had really become mainstream um but eight track was the hot new <laughs> you know um medium at that point which didn't last very long but it was but that was the time where it was becoming the thing so and these real the real players like who had them how many people had them how accessible were they like they, we we looked into that quite a bit and um and, and then it becomes a big plot point. Yeah, because people keep talking about the garage. There's a guy at the garage who's like, "We won't have a real-to-real player." What the, what's that about? Or is it just like right. garages are like bodegas? They've, they've got everything. So uh... yeah, maybe. Well, I think yeah, Leon, Leon at the at the at the gas station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Sorry, garage. That's my uh, British English coming <laughs> coming out. That, that was I love I mean this is something I, I really I, I think this is one of those sort of hidden delights of, of movies set in the 70s is just the clunkiness of the the thingness of things that we've mm -hmm. the, that we don't really have anymore because everything is sort of in the cloud and lightweight and the, yeah, all the rest of yeah. and and part of it was you know we wanted to use that you know as, as plot device and also the fact that um, you couldn't just Google someone. When you were meeting someone new, you didn't know what they looked like and you had to trust them or not trust them. And and I think that's a big part of, you know, why 70s conspiracy thrillers work is because you didn't know what people were look like and were they telling the truth about who they were and when they were. And, um, you know, so we, we kind of played around with those ideas a lot too. 
Yeah, I mean, before I go to any place like a you know a hotel or, or wherever, I'm I go on Google Street View and have a look around and see you know yeah. this place looks like a dump. I'm not going here, <laughs> you know. Um, that's it. And, and what what um, has the response been? Because you've been taking it theatrically around uh, around the states and and you've opened it in the UK uh, as well. Well, we we started with the festival run starting last right. fall. Um, kind of by design, somewhat by luck, we wound up playing uh, ten festivals in the fall that were kind of in that trough between uh, Omicron and Delta. Mm -hmm. um, there was about a two month gap where, after a, a year of festivals all being virtual, there were finally live festivals, and you could show a film to a real audience and and actually hear people laughing or crying or booing or whatever they were going to do. Um, so we did about 10 festivals then. Um, and then during that time, during that festival run is kind of when we started to get um, distribution for the film because we didn't mm. come into it with distribution. Um, and so that was good. And then there was the Omicron spike over the winter. Festivals went remote again. Um, and then we had this, this other gap where we played about another 10 or so festivals in the spring, kind of between Omicron and World War III and uh, where <laughs> festivals were live. And that's when, that's when I went to the UK. We went to Manchester Film Festival and I won the Best Director Prize and got well COVID, done. You know, so, oh, um, damn. Yeah, that's, <laughs> well, it came in a goodie bag. You know? Swings so, and roundabouts. Uh, and then. And then now with the theatrical run in the States, we're sort of in this other trough between, you know, where monkeypox hasn't hit yet, but, uh, you know, that'll be the next thing. And uh, where people are starting to go to movie theaters, you know, we opened the same weekend that, that Top Gun opened. <laughs> so, but, you know, Tom Cruise got people in the theaters and, and we, we, we took a couple of them into, into our theaters. Um, but still, people are very, you know, and with good reason, are still reluctant to go to theaters. And so, you know, but that also changes everyone's expectations about what is a good performing film. Like, if you can get five people on a weeknight, great, I'll mm. take it, you know, that's mm. um, and that's fine. And then it, you know, but we still had this, like, 45-day window before the VOD, you know, kicked in. And that was, um, which, again, a lot during the pandemic, certainly, and especially before the pandemic, most indie films were doing these day and date releases where the theatrical was the same as the VOD, but films would just get lost. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think by having that extra 45 day window and playing in 60 theaters, we were able to kind of make a little bit more of a, of a splash for ourselves. And we timed it intentionally to come out around the same time as the 50th anniversary of the initial Watergate break-in, which was June 17th. And so there was a lot more press and attention and, and just consciousness about Watergate at the time, which certainly helped. And then, you know, and then not for nothing, the January 6th committee hearings are going on, the Boris Johnson scandals going on. So a lot of comparisons to Watergate these days. And that that's only kind of helped us. Um, and it's been fun and it's been great to, to see the response that people have. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the the timing is so interesting as well that you're kind of quite specifically sort of judging uh, where to where to drop it. And then there's these accidental things happening, which are just boosting it as well. Yeah. So it's been been a lot of uh, uh, I mean, I, I wish I'm glad for your film. I wish it wasn't so prescient. And so, uh, well, I mean, prescient, it's a period <laughs> film, but it feels prescient. I mean, that's yeah. the that's the problem. 
Well, and that, and that was, you know, I always felt like, okay, with an independent film, especially, but even with a Hollywood film, you, as we've discussed, you don't know exactly when it's, when people are going to see it. You can mm. have a scheduled start, you know, release date, and even that could get changed because of a global pandemic or whatever. So in doing, and it was interesting going back to the writing process, we tried not to do anything too specific to what was going on with the Trump administration over the course of those, those years, right. because we knew that would change. It would change the next day it would change the next week so but i think thematically we tried to put enough in there that someone anyone watching in the future but also in any country could see could relate to it and it would be relevant and and resonate with them in different ways at different times in different places so like when we did show the film in brazil at the sao paulo international film festival that was our international premiere everyone was like oh this is just like bolsonaro you know right, when we yeah. were in manchester People were like, oh, this is just like Boris Johnson. So that was um, so that's been kind of fun and interesting to see sort of how it resonates with different people in different places. Yeah, yeah. No, unfortunately, there is much more. Uh, in, I, you get the feeling that Nixon kind of lost the battle and won the war when it came, comes to sort of cultural influence compared to Kennedy, yeah. for instance. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. there's not many Kennedy-like politicians around at the moment, but there are right. plenty of Nixon-like politicians. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> but I and what's your what's your what what next? Have you got something already uh, cooking, or are you uh, are you at that stage of sort of like? post-coital smoking a cigarette <laughs> well there's still a lot to do with this um right, right. As, as much as i would love to be able to move on to the next thing right away um uh there is actually some talk about turning 18 and a half into a stage play mm. um so i'm talking to some people at some theater companies about that um there's a little bit of chatter about maybe expanding it into an episodic series uh, it's mainly me doing that chattering, but it's someone who's <laughs> chattering, and that's what counts. Um, Come on, Netflix, listen to this podcast. So yeah, please. please. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, and and also, there's still a lot of like um, I have to, I still have to cut all the behind the scenes stuff for the DVD and Blu-ray release, which is going to come out in the fall. Uh, the film's going to be coming out on airlines starting in September, mm. and that's actually pretty cool and and fairly unique uh that we're going to come out on on a number of different international airlines um there's so there's a lot i need to do and then there's just accounting and taxes that have to be done on every film that are very boring and very necessary because otherwise the whole process falls apart so um so there's a lot left but i am starting to think about maybe what's next but um but i think we're also going to be doing some college touring Mm. Uh, in the fall and the spring and uh, and that'll be a lot of fun because there's a lot of different ways that I think colleges could show the film as a midnight cult film where every time Wonder Bread gets mentioned people throw Wonder Bread at the screen I, it could happen you know and um, uh, you know to academic you know screenings with history and political science departments and, and touring around with that so I'm, I'm looking forward to some of that too yeah, I was wondering when, uh, as well, uh, you know, when we're, you're looking at this as a period film that has relevance to now, but I was I was kind of trying to think the other day about, you know, we haven't had our Donald Trump film yet, you know. I mean, George W. Bush, you know, Oliver Stone was making W, you know, yeah, pretty, pretty sh you know, on the heels of the presidency itself. So, you know, I, I'm just wondering if that's going to... What is going to? What kind of cultural reaction is going to come out of uh, of the po political situation that we're living in at the moment? 
I mean, I'm sure people are already working on things um, when they come out is another matter uh, mm. because I think it is, I think like, yeah, I mean, yeah, Stone came out with W, you know, pretty quickly, but I, but it didn't do so well. You know, that's the thing is I think you need some time to reflect on these things. Like all these people making pandemic films, like I don't want to watch a pandemic film now. I don't know that I'd want to watch a Trump film now. Like I'm living, I, I just lived through it, <laughs> you know? So, um, so I think you need some, t I mean, I think you need some time to, to kind of, you know, process it and reflect back on it. And then, and then you can have fun with the creating the historical fiction sides of it you know because i think if you do something that's super specific and you know then if you get one little thing wrong it it it, th it throws everything but i think mm. if you do kind of our approach where yeah yeah you're creating these kind of side character fictional characters then it allows you a lot more creative freedom to to do the thing I mean, yeah, I was thinking of that guy. Um, who's uh, Will Ferrell's best mate? Uh, Adam yeah, McKay. Yeah, Adam McKay. Yeah, Magam I'm McKay, sure. Right. Yeah, I'm sure he's working on something. Yeah, he's, he's got his <laughs> crayon. He's got a box of crayons out, and he's writing his script. Absolutely, and he's and he's good at, at what he does, you know. Mm. But uh, mm. but you know, when... <laughs> <laughs> or not? Or yeah. not? Uh, yeah. But, okay. Yeah. I'll. I'll yeah. I'll, but be, I think like I think his Dick Cheney film. You know, again, mm. that was that was good eight years after dick cheney had already left i think right. if he had done it any earlier it wouldn't have made as much sense in in a, in a way so it, you need a little bit of that time mm. um but yeah but yeah he's the kind of person i'm sure someone's you know if he if he isn't working on a trump script i'm sure people are sending them yeah script. absolutely absolutely <laughs> whether he wants them or not this is in your wheelhouse adam you, you gotta work on it for yeah your sins exactly um, Dan, could you um, could you recommend a film book for us uh, as 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 a listener to the podcast? You'll know that this question was coming up. I'm sure. Well, funny you should funny you should say that, John. I just happen to have one here. It's called the Cheerful Subversive's Guide to Independent Filmmaking, uh, second edition that I wrote. Yeah, what are the odds? This is this is the first. We've never had somebody recommend their own book on the podcast. I know. What what are the odds? Uh, so yeah, this is the second edition of this thing. It's published by uh, Focal Press, which is part of Rutledge, which is kind of an academic publisher. So it's, yeah. it has actually been used in film schools, and and this edition I wrote while we were making the film. So there's actually a whole chapter on how to shoot a film in a global pandemic, which is all about how we made 18 and a half. Um, it, the, I think the chapter name is COVID 18 and a half. Right. Um, and uh, so, so yeah, I was writing it literally while we were shooting the movie. Um, and and, and, may, and so it, it's one of the few film books that actually goes into like the nuances of how do you direct wearing a mask and, and right. face shield. How do yeah. you direct wearing a wearing? A it's mask? complicated because normally you're you you get accustomed to you know if you want to adjust an actor's performance or discuss with them between takes you pull them aside which you're not allowed to touch people now you know and and whisper which you can't do now you have to especially at the time we had to stay six feet away so you wind up say you know yelling across the room for everybody to hear you know you're overacting turn it down. <laughs> or, you know, or, 
you know, do something to surprise the other actor. Oh, oh they can hear it. Um, or in the middle of a shot, you would whisper to the cinematographer or the camera operator, you know, like, you know, zoom in quietly. It's like, zoom in. They, you know, it's like, cut, 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 you know, or the boom is in the shot. What? The boom is in the shot. What? The boom is in. So it's, there's a lot of that kind of it which is just it just slows you down and and you really have to adjust how you relate to all these people in a mm. way that is different than pre-pandemic so it, it's things like that that are you know and then you know where do you find you know sag says you have to get pcr shots uh, or testing you know 24-hour mm. testing every three days well if you're in a remote location and there's no labs out there how do you deal with that? You know, right. and like, well, we found hospitals that we could work with directly. And that, and that kind of helped a lot of other filmmakers. Once we found, you know, a methodology for that, that, you know, a lot of other people started doing that too. So yeah, it's, it's not easy. It's not perf the preferred way. I mean, now, now with vaccinations that DGA and SAG have come out with, you know, not relaxed, but slightly different rules where it makes it a little easier, but yeah, with those face shields, like, it was really freaky because someone would talk to you talk behind you and you would think they're in front of you because they would deflect the sound in right. weird ways and i was always looking around like who's talking to me who's talking to me what's what's going on what's it was yeah it's not the ideal way to make a film for sure but no, i was yeah, teaching i was teaching with those masks on and i was always feeling like somehow i wasn't they couldn't see my mouth move so how can i teach a language where you know students do look at your mouth and see if you're yeah you exactly uh, yeah no it's a it's a whole new world but you know people are figuring it out and and making things and surviving and trying not to kill each other on set you know and uh, and and aside yeah. from the the recommendations on covid that chap that that specific chapter the the book oh. is is a sort of a nuts and bolts how you make an yep. independent film and in terms of like uh, what you were saying earlier about, you know, you had got to pay your taxes. You got to, you know. Yeah, it goes into all that stuff. Yeah, everything from from finding a script, finding locations to how to raise money, where to raise money, who to raise money from, um, how to set up an LLC or whatever structure you need um, uh, to to casting and how, how do you do casting and when do you do casting and. And you know the the and then post production film festivals is a whole section on film festivals and, mm. and what you do with your career at, you know when you're all done and and I think kind of the underlying theme of the book kind of goes back to something Robert Altman kind of instilled in in me and and Dana which was you know tell everyone the trains leaving the station you set a start date and 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 you stick to that date and and if you and if you haven't you know you could you could keep pushing this project for years and years and years and never make the film and that is certainly true with 18 and a half if we had pushed it because oh we heard rumblings of a pandemic we might still never have made the movie you mm. know to this day mm. and um but that you know once you kind of get that philosophy in mind like i'm gonna make this film like i may wind up shooting it on an iphone or imax and anything in between um, but we're going to make the movie and we're going to make it on such and such a day. Um, then it then it sort of helps inform how you're going to raise money, how much money you're going to raise, how you're going to cast it, um, you know, uh, because I do a lot of crowdfunding and that's cast agnostic financing. So you don't know who your cast is going to be 
as I say, even once you start shooting a movie, you still don't know always, but, right. but at least we're making the movie, you know? Yeah. And then, so that's kind of the underlying, you know, theme of the, of, of the book. And, um, is you know it's better to make the low budget movie than to not make the big budget version which you could wait around for years to make so yeah um and that's yeah that's kind of been my career like just just make them and see who you wind up getting and and hope for the best i always think that the um the writing has to has to sort of um that's your first frontier if you like in terms of the uh, you know you get that's the bit that you don't have to pay anybody in terms of well of course you have to pay the writer if you but if you are the writer you can no you don't you don't pay anybody <laughs> <laughs> but you know you, do you know what i mean it's just it's sort of it, somebody said to me recently that um you know uh a plot twist is the cheapest special effect um, and I thought that's such a I, I was someone on this podcast, so you can go back and find out who it was. Was it Tom Schoen? Maybe. Anyway, the whole idea being that that's one thing. Like as a low budget, you don't have to spend loads of money on it. But if you have a really good story, a really good as you did with your with the the the, the MacGuffin, mm. it's such a great concept, and that didn't cost you a penny. That just that was yeah, just exactly. in the script. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great advice. Um, yeah, I th what I've found is the thing that's the biggest unknown in budgeting and planning a thing is is uh, is location, mm. because my experience is locations are either free or they're surprisingly expensive, and you right. don't always know what they're going to be until you start getting into it. Um, so, which is why if you start with someone saying, "Hey, here's this motel, and we'll give it to you more or less for free," like uh, you write the script around that. That's the kind of a, a, a good. I've done that on a couple films, but um, but that's the biggest unknown because casting and crew, like you can you know, like okay, if we're shooting on an iPhone, this is what we're going to pay the crew. If we're shooting on 35 millimeter, this is what we're going to pay. If we're shooting it on an Alexa, you know, this is kind of the scale and the scope of it. But um, but yeah, but like you said, yeah, if it's if it's not in the script, it's uh, it's it's not going to be in the movie, and 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 the writing, you know, it's it costs a couple cups of coffee, you know, mm. per per scene in the movie, you know, and that's that's it. <laughs> only, <laughs> only per scene, or I would four or five per scene, let's say. Yeah, yeah, least, yeah. <laughs> brilliant, Dan. Well, I'm going to get a copy of that book because I'm, it's my ambition. I also state it boldly here. In the next couple of years, I'm going to make a film. All right, that's, I, that's yeah. Yeah, I, I've just realized that nothing get no, nothing I do ever gets done unless I do it myself. Do you know what I mean? It's like this, Absolutely. Uh, this podcast, you know? Yeah. If I, if I yeah, sort yeah. of pitched this to somebody else, I'd still not be doing it. But if I just yeah. do it on my own, then, you yep. know, here we go. So. Yeah, exactly. Well, the book, you can, you can get it around the world. Uh, in fact, it, the first edition just got translated into Chinese. So if you read mandarin you can get that um but i also did the uh damn I did it. A, carry a, on they speak cantonese damn it <laughs> next edition um but yeah there's a i did an audio version of the book um this past year as well so that's that's available out there as well but yeah no i mean that's the secret you just have to do it yourself i mean i, I live a block and a half south of the stony lot one of the biggest studios in hollywood it used to be the mgm lot and i have to remind myself they're not knocking on my door mm. <laughs> at all but yeah. um but you know technically since i'm south of them they're in my shadow not the other way around so um 
uh, that's the only way I can wake up in the morning. <laughs> you console yourself <laughs> with that thought. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much, Dan. Congratulations on the film. And, uh, and, and yeah, everyone should go and see it. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for everything. Okay, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna cut cut there, um, but yeah, that was a brilliant conversation. Really enjoyed that. Yeah, thanks, John. Yeah, nice nice chatting with you. Um... So that was me and Dan talking about his film 18 and a half and his career generally and uh, it was a, a great conversation I really enjoyed it we really got got down into some stuff there and a very varied conversation as well hopefully it will inspire you to go and watch 18 and a half or maybe you've already seen it I mean and that's even even better over the next couple of weeks it's gonna be festival time so uh, hopefully I should get another episode out for next week but um, just just be aware that it might be a bit of a bumpy road as we go into the well as, as we leave the summer and head towards the autumn yeah nothing else really to say except thank you Ali Howard for the design and the artwork thank you very much to Elliot Atkins for the music and thank you dear listener for uh for keeping me company while I while I while I do this and of course thank you to my guest Dan Mervish uh, his movie again 18 and a half to be watched and enjoyed so until next time take care you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.